Okay, so we're going to go into more about alcoholism, which just starts on page 30. And, um, you know, this to me is the chapter that tells me why I have to, to go to Overeaters Anonymous. You know, we've talked a lot about the allergy, but once again, if my problem is only the allergy, the 12 steps don't treat the allergy. I don't need the 12 steps to treat the allergy. Um, and I heard it once said, you know, my real problem is I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. That, that's my real problem. So what we're going to have, this, this chapter is not about people that are drunk or in the food that can't get sober or abstinent. These are stories about people that are sober and make that insane decision to drink again. So that's where I'm at now. You know, the, the assumption at this point is that you're abstinent. How, can I can, how, how, how come I cannot stay abstinent? That's the really big thing. Um, and I just want to give another example for me. I, I do not drink caffeine. I abstain from caffeine. But it's not a part of my abstinence. See, I discovered um, in, my, in my office we get free soda. So I was drinking a lot of Diet Coke. And every Sunday I would have these bad headaches and nausea feelings, thinking I had like a stomach flu or something. And finally, I connected the fact that what was happening is I was drinking Diet Coke during the week, which has caffeine in it. I wasn't drinking it on the weekend because, you know, I drink, I drink Diet Coke because it's free. <laughs> and the, my, my physical reaction is I get headaches and migraines from caffeine. That knowledge was enough for me to say I abstain from caffeine. So there's no mental obsession with that. With, the, with my allergic foods, I not only have this physical response of craving for more, but these foods I have to have more and more and more of, and then, and then I have this mental obsession that tells me I have to pick up again. So that's what I need, need is I need help with that mental obsession so I don't go back to those foods that create that phenomenon of craving. So it's, it says on page 30, most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were real alcoholics. I don't know about you, but I always said I was an emotional eater, I'm a stress eater, you know, which really was trying to say if I could get things to go my way, I wouldn't need to eat. So I just want to take a little bit of a survey. How many people have eaten when they're, when they're sad? Aww. How many people have eaten when they're happy? <laughs> Yay! How many people have eaten when a relationship ends? <laughs> How many have eaten when a relationship is going well? How many people have eaten when they got fired? How many people have eaten when they, when they got a promotion? We're all screwed. Okay, so that's, yeah, this, is the, this is the disillusion. I can't arrange my life in a certain way to be comfortable enough. So this is the chapter that's going to tell me why I, can, why I will continue to eat regardless of the circumstances around me. Now, I used to always say, you know, that, um, you know, I have, I have a built-in forgetter and all these different things. The way that the big book um, describes it, I think, is beautiful. It talks about that we're illusional, delusional, and insane. And that word delusional specifically was really, was really big for me. Talk, well, it talks about, well, let me go through the book first. It says, our drinking careers. And I think that's kind of funny. Like, a, what's a career? It's something you do full-time and you put a lot of effort into. You know what I mean? Like, I would never describe, you know, I love to read. I've never talked about my reading career. You know, I mean, I, even though I enjoy it. This was, this was a full-time job. You know, specifically for me, I didn't come in here obese. I came in here after I was bulimic, and I was terrified because I got down to that magical size 14, and life still wasn't okay. And it was a full-time job being a human calculator. I, I mean, you give me any kind of candy bar, I can tell you exactly how many minutes on an elliptical machine I need in order to, to you know, get that, that, that off. So 
the idea that, that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. And I didn't really realize that until I was going through this book. See, my illusion was, you know, when I'm controlling it, I'm not enjoying it. And when I'm enjoying it, I'm not controlling it. So the illusion is I want to be able to do both of those things. And one of my plans, um, I don't know how many guys have been here, how long you've been in OA, but back in the mid-90s, there was meetings at the Echelon Mall on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I would have, that was my pizza night, because I would go to the <laughs> mall, and I would eat a Scotto's pizza, the two slices, the magical two slices, and then I would go to the meeting at the Burlington uh, Mall Ministry, and that was the way that I would control and enjoy my eating. I would have my allotted amount, and then I would go in there. So that was my illusion. I mean, even in my bulimia, I absolutely cannot stand carrots. Um, so what I would do is I would eat what was reasonable, and then I would eat a bunch of carrots, and then I would binge on all the things I really wanted to eat, and I would just throw up until the carrots came up, and then I'm like, okay, that, that's where I stop because then I have the, what I need nutritionally. Like, that is how I thought I could control and enjoy my eating. And then it talks about here, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step of recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. That's the delusion. You know, if I believe I'm 98% a compulsive overeater, that 2% is going to take me out. And, and the way that I think of the delusion is, I think of myself like I'm like a schizophrenic. You know, a schizophrenic hears the voices. It's real to them. It's not, you know, don't believe the lie and all, you know, I can't eat on the truth. I, I don't know. I can't differentiate the truth from the false. I'm going to eat regardless. I am delusional, which is why I need a power greater than myself. And I have to tell you, my delusion was a delusion. The delusion I can eat like, eat like other people. Now, I have a friend, Melissa, who is a normal eater. Okay, so if we're going out to dinner, and she usually gets there late, and we all sit down, and she's like, God, I'm really hungry. And she goes, oh, my God, I forgot to eat lunch. I've never forgotten to eat lunch, okay? And then she orders appetizers because she wants to share with other people. I mean, I really think appetizers <laughs> is like a one-person thing, you know? And then she orders the entree will come, and she still pushed some stuff off to the side. And I'm like, Miss, what are you doing? She goes, oh, I thought I was in the mood for it, and I'm now not. And then she always, always has to have dessert, and she's just like Maria's sister. She'll have those first couple bites of chocolate because she has to have chocolate. And she'll go, oh, that's way too rich, or I'm way too full. I don't want to eat like that. What I want to do is I want to eat the way I want to eat, and I want to look like my friend Melissa. The way I always describe it, I think you guys are of a certain age, is I want to look like Anna Nicole Smith did in Playboy, but I want to eat like Anna Nicole Smith did in her VH1 special. Like, that is, that is the delusion that I have, right? So that's what I have to look at. That's the mind that I'm thinking. Human aid is not going to help that. And then the next paragraph, it's control, control, control. So here is where I had to look at some of my delusions, actually, with, with my experience in, in uh, Overeaters Anonymous. It talks about here, all of us felt that at times we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by even less, still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced that to a man of alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable time, we get worse, never better. 
So I come into Overeaters Anonymous. I'm 27 years old. I am so happy that people understand how I ate. And the fellowship is incredibly strong. And I'm able to stay abstinent for periods of time. But every time I pick up, it seems to get harder. And every time I, I, it seems I'm, I'm getting, you know, um, the periods of control are becoming less and the periods of being out of control are getting more. And I know it's very popular in our area to have these relapse and recovery meetings, so that's what I'm saying. I'm relapsing and I'm recovering. Well, what I had to look at is if recovery is the 12 steps, and what I'm doing is I'm coming in and using OA as a diet program with group support, then it's not recovery. What's happening is my disease is progressing so that this, this human aid of the fellowship was so strong isn't able to sustain me for those periods of time. So the first time I was abstinent, I was six years abstinent, and this is, once again, the alcoholic mind. I am your inner group chair because I have gone from a size 24 to a size 2. And I'm going in, in now in Region 7, and they want me to run for World Service Trustee. Well, I don't want to be World Service Trustee, and I don't, haven't worked the steps, and I don't know how to tell people no, but I think to myself, if I pick up, I'm not qualified to be a World Service Trustee. <laughs> And I'll just pick up and get back on track tomorrow. So I pick up and I go, I can't get back on track. And after that, I can never get more than eight or nine months, and then eight or nine weeks, and then eight or nine days, and then eight or nine hours. Because I, what I didn't realize is that six years I was abstinent, I, that disease was progressing in me. So I had to recognize that a lot of the times that I was thinking I was relapsing and recovering in Overeaters Anonymous, it was really the fact that the disease was progressing and progressing and progressing. And until it progressed to the point that I could not do it, why would I do the steps? Why? There was no reason to. So they also, they also give this example here of like men who've lost their legs. So they, it says that um, they never grow new ones. So that's, that's kind of an abstract thing. So I'm looking around. A lot of people here wear glasses. So when you were coming today, did you think to yourself, should I wear glasses today or not? Or when you go on vacation, do you think, ah, oh, is this a vacation I want to bring my glasses to or not? Or, God damn it, it's my birthday. I shouldn't have to wear glasses. You fully concede that you need glasses. And you, and you, you wear your glasses, and you're grateful to have glasses so that you can see properly. I have to fully concede to my innermost self. I don't get to take off as a compulsive overeater on my vacations or on my birthday. I fully concede that. You know, when I, went on, when I go on vacation, I'm a very pale person. I sunburn very easily. And when I go on vacation, I have to pack my SPF 50 and my aloe and all those different things. And I fully concede that I know I can't be out in the sun for long periods of time. The same way that I have to make certain arrangements with my food. I'm not angry about packing SPF 50, and I'm not angry about having what I have to do with my food. They're simply the way that I was built. And there's no anger, and there's no resentment on it. And I always like to share this little story. I, I remember the first time I read this part, right after the Boston Marathon bombing, and all those people literally lost their legs. Mm -hmm. And I was watching a TV show, and they had a woman on there that has this... Um, this, this uh, charity, and she's a woman who actually double amputee below the knee, um, which apparently is a huge deal if you get below the knee or above the knee, uh, from, from cancer. And she, she got this uh, charity together for people to help people who've lost limbs. And she was working with these people from the Boston Marathon. And, she's, and she brought three, four separate points, which really identified them with a 12-step program. 
She said, first of all, the biggest problems are people who are in denial that they lost their legs. That if, you know, their life, they were thinking their life wasn't going to change. They're just going to live exactly the same way they did before they lost their, leg, their legs. She also talked about the fact that um, being around people who have the same problem. There was something about being with other people that lost their legs that gave these people hope. What is Overeaters Anonymous? Um, and then it talked about the, the people who are involved in that program, they get much more out of when they're through the program and mentoring other people than they ever did going through the program. I've gotten more out of sponsoring people and going through this book, working with other people than I ever got when I went through the book myself. And the last thing was that this woman, she said that she was a, she was a couch potato before her cancer diagnosis and getting her legs removed. And she is now a triathlete. So she's able to do things after her, in, you know, her, her legs being removed than she was ever do before. I'm a shy person. For me to get up and speak in front of a room is a miracle. I've been able to go to Canada to do a big book weekend. I was just asked to go to Ireland to do a weekend. That's something I never could have done before Overeaters Anonymous. So that's, that's the opportunities that we have here. I always like to share that because it just, it just so hits me. So let's go down, down to the bottom of page 31. And there's a woman, um, I think she was the first woman in AA called Marty Mann, and she talked about this thing called the Marty Mann test. So it talks about at the bottom of 31, we do not like to pronounce any individual as an alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room, or pantry, I call it, and try some controlled eating. Try to eat and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take long for you to decide if you are honest with yourself. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters if you get a full knowledge of your condition. So if you're abstinent right now, I'm not asking you to pick up to do this test, but think about your own history. You know, Marty Mann's test was, if you think that you're not an alcoholic, have one beer every day for 30 days, and if you're able to do that contently, you're not an alcoholic. So I like to think of this from my own experience. My favorite food by far is a tomato. And if you said to me, Kim, I'll give you $100,000 if you have one tomato every day for 30 days, no more, no less, I would make that money like that. But if you said, Kim, I want you to have two slices of pizza every day for 30 days, no more, no less, and I'll pay you a million dollars, I would never, ever be able to do that. Some days I might be able to do it. Some days I would have none. Most days I'd probably have two pies. But it doesn't make sense because there's tomatoes on pizza, right? So why are they different? That's what I have to look at. What is different about a tomato versus a pizza that I cannot reasonably predict? And that's the way I like it. Because, you know, I didn't always binge. There were times, usually when there wasn't anything left, but there were times that I could, could have a couple. So the way that I like to explain it, my allergy, is I cannot reasonably predict how much I'm going to have. I can't reasonably predict when I pick up a slice of pizza how much I'm going to have. And those are the foods that I have to abstain from. Those are the foods that I'm going to barter and I'm going to negotiate. Those are the foods that I exactly have to look at. So now it goes into one of the four stories, and it's called The Man of 30. So this, on page 32, that second paragraph, a man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quieted himself with some liquor. So this is restless, irritable discontent, right? quiet himself with his liquor. That was, I had to really get the idea. Food was not my problem. It was my solution. So when I get restless, irritable, discontent, what is my solution? I pick up. Okay? 
about halfway down that paragraph, it says he fell victim to a belief. Okay, so he's 30 years old. He's realizing that the drinking is getting in the way of him being successful in business. So he decides until he gets successful in business and retires, he's not going to drink. And he's got a lot of willpower, so he's able to do that. But once he picks up, he's dead within four years. So I always think about it, well, you know, I really want to get married. I really want to go to the prom. I'm going to stay on that diet and willpower my way through that. But once I, you know, I can't even tell you how many times I would, my, you know, I think I've got a lot of women. I was a professional bridesmaid in most of my 20s. <laughs> so I would diet down to fit in that dress and then make that exception at the rehearsal dinner. And I would barely fit in the dress by the time the wedding happened three or four days later. Because once I start, I cannot stop. So it says here, he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has that a long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. I think in a way a lot of that has to do with, I've been a goal weight now for two years, two weeks, two minutes. I'm good. But that's the fell victim to the belief, thinking that if I abstain from the allergy, the allergy is going to go away. Okay? So um, if you go to page 33, that first full paragraph, this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have... Oh, I don't know what happened. 